Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Before I take you into this phenomenal section of the Sermon on the Mount, I've asked my friend, Dr. Mark Strauss, one of the translators of the New International Version Bible, to give us a synopsis to just in a couple of minutes set the stage for where we go from here. Hello, North Coast Calvary Chapel. This is Mark Strauss. So good to be with you today. Matthew 5, 17-20 is one of the hardest passages in the New Testament. Whereas in the following teaching, Jesus seems to qualify and even change the Old Testament law. Here he explicitly says he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He also says that anyone who sets aside even the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of God. Finally, to make matters worse, Jesus says to enter the kingdom of God, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who meticulously kept the law. So which is it? Are believers no longer under the law or are we to keep the law perfectly? The answer to both these questions is actually yes. So how can this be? The key, I think, is what Jesus says at the beginning of this section. He says he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You see, the Old Testament law given to Israel was a good thing. Its purpose was to reveal God's righteous standards and to provide the means of forgiveness when Israel broke those standards. But it was given to Israel under God's covenant with them and was never meant to be permanent or to be for all people everywhere. You see, Israel had failed to keep God's first covenant proving that human beings can't save themselves by their own good works. But Jesus came to establish the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, and in that way to bring the old covenant and the Old Testament law to its fulfillment. By fulfillment, we mean its intended goal or its ultimate purpose. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. First, he kept its commands perfectly. He lived a sinless and perfect life. Second, he suffered and died to pay the penalty for sin that the law imposed. By dying on the cross, he established the new covenant, providing full and complete forgiveness for our sins and a personal relationship with God, mediated by the Holy Spirit. This brought the old covenant to its end, to its goal, to its fulfillment. It's now fulfilled in Christ. Under the new covenant, we have the very Spirit of God living in us. And so we have much greater power to live a righteous life than was available under the old covenant. So we live to a higher standard than the Pharisees because our righteousness reflects the true heart of God. This is what Jesus is doing in the following passage when he quotes from the Old Testament and says, You have heard it said. And then he adds, But I say to you, You see, in this passage, he qualifies the Old Testament law by pointing to the true heart of God behind these commands. And under the new covenant, we can connect to the heart of God by walking daily with him and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to fulfill the law. We fulfill it in Christ. God bless you as you walk with him today. Re-radicalized. That's what's been happening to my life, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount calls us to. During this lockdown, I've discovered so many different parts of me that I want to change, and asking myself, 
How do I want to emerge as we come out of this lockdown? Well, I've found in following Jesus that there's only one way to follow Jesus. It's all in. We can't just kind of do it halfway or a little bit here, a little bit there. We have to decide, and that's what it means to be radical, all in. Today we come to a dangerous passage of scripture. It's kind of ominous. I remember years ago skiing with some friends of mine. I had only skied a couple of times, and they said, Mark, you're a natural. You got this. And so they took me to a double black diamond mountain, and, and I looked down this slope, and I was terrified. It was covered with moguls, and I didn't know how I was going to go down this. And they told me, Mark, you've got to go all in. You can't get ahead of your skis. You can't fall back on your skis. You've got to be on top of your skis, on your toes, all in. And that's what Jesus calls us to as we come into this passage is to decide I'm all in. And guess what? He's going to change our lives. Now, what I want to do, first of all, is fly at 30,000 feet so we can catch the whole landscape of what he's saying here. And then we'll dip down and take a deeper look at each of the passages and what they're saying. So we're finding ourselves in Matthew 5.21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, you'll remember, this is what we studied last week. So I'll just skip over parts of this. But I tell you, if anyone is angry, he's subject to judgment. Therefore, if there's something between you and someone else, he says, instead of just worshiping, and leave, he says, leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled. And he sums it up by saying, Settle matters quickly. And here's what we take home from that, just in a synopsis. Your transformation is connected to other people. How we treat other human beings matters. Now for new material. 527. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. A lot to go back to. But for now, think of it. He's talking about adultery, lust. Think of our world today. Pornography, softer forms of lust, or even what we play with in our minds. What he's saying is how you treat another human being matters. Verse 31 it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. How you treat another human being matters. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. 
but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. I tell you again, do not swear on an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head. You cannot make even one hair on your head, white or black, although I guess we can nowadays. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. How you treat another human being matters. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. How you treat another person matters. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How you treat another person matters. Some early observations. This is how I study the scripture. I read it quickly. I make some early observations and I just write them down. And here's the things I wrote down. It's clear here that Jesus is the new authority. He's the new sheriff in town. He is the king of the kingdom. So he says, you have heard it said, which was a rabbinical way of teaching. Literally, it was said to the ancients. And so Jesus takes their tradition and then he counters it with, but I say to you. And he does that six times. You have heard it said, and six times, but I say to you. And what we're to notice is it's startling. Who is this guy that counters the very word of God? And he speaks to us with, but I say to you, as if his words are equivalent to scripture. He's already told us in the beginning that he has come as the fulfillment to the law. But now he's letting us know This issue of transformation really, really matters. He wants us to be all in. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount ends by saying, when he had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So a good place to pause 
and ask ourselves the question is now, is he your authority? Is he my authority? Your king, my king. Because if we're making compromises and treaties, yeses and noes, it's not going to work. He's calling us to be all in. Now, the issues that we're facing here that we might have challenges with are, number one, he calls out the Pharisees and the listeners for their minimizing of the word of God. Each of these issues, the leaders were minimizing them and shrinking them down. And I've noticed I do the same thing. I pick the scriptures I like. I ignore the ones I don't understand or I don't like. But those like this one could be the very ones that could change my life. The other thing I want you to think about is Jesus hasn't changed. The Jesus you fell in love with, the Jesus who loves you, the Jesus who died for you, the Jesus who is taking you to heaven, it's the same Jesus. He's forgiven you of all your sins, but now he's zeroing on a part of our lives that maybe we haven't noticed before that needs transformation. Then you'll notice that he uses a lot of hyperbole. Some great teachers and historical figures over the years have been masters at hyperbole. Winston Churchill, Martin Luther. Jesus uses the hyperbole, for example, if you just say the word fool, you're going to hell. Are we to think that that's really what's happening? Or if your right eye offends you, gouge it out, cut off your hand. Is that really what Jesus is saying here? Hyperbole is a gross exaggeration to make a striking point or comment, and that's what we're to notice. And the comment that we're to notice is this idea of he changing you. Jesus changing me in the core, the most difficult areas of our lives. We're also not to think that this is only for the all-star monks, that this kind of transformation is just for the all-stars that go away and they, they, they meditate on all these issues. This is for the nitty-gritty followers like you and me. And then I want you to notice that all six of these issues deal with selfishness at its core. Yeah. So selfishness and pride essentially don't work well with following Jesus. And it harms other relationships. And then you'll notice he sums it all up with this idea of being perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. Now here again, I shy away from anything that has to do with perfectionism. That to me is persnickety. And I know I can't measure up. But there's another way to look at this. Luke chapter 6, which is another place where Jesus gives this sermon. Jesus uses the words instead, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. It's not perfectionism. It's being complete or mature or like God, that he's calling us to be like God in the ultimate way God is calling us to be like him is to love just like he loves. One way to think about all of this is the old parable uh, that came to us uh, from the Middle Ages and all the way back to Rome. I quoted it 
in our Philippians study this Wednesday, the idea of the princess kissing the frog and the frog being transformed into a prince. That's what's happening here. Jesus is coming to you in your warts and wrinkles and he's saying, come on, follow me, let's change. So now let's go deeper. With each of these commands, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. He isn't window dressing. He doesn't want to whitewash you and I and just make us look like we're good people. He wants to make us good people. And so he's dealing with the heart and each one of these issues goes to the heart. As we studied last week, instead of not murdering, he says, deal with your anger at your heart. Next, we come to adultery and lust. Now, the hyperbole here offends us. The gouging of the eye, the, the cutting off of the hand. But it does grab our attention and, wants, and tells us that how we treat another person really matters. That it's not just what is done on the outside. It's what's done on the inside. And lusting after someone else the skin, the outer shell of someone else. What is that? It's the dishonoring of society, dishonoring of a person, and it's missing the point. So the point is for us to value this other person. There's a great scene out of The Matrix uh, where Neo is being told to be careful about what he looks at and what he trusts. And he sees this woman walk by in a red dress. He turns his head to notice her, the second look, and it's actually someone from the Matrix, someone dark and evil. And it's a great picture for you and I. I remember as a kid, Billy Graham teaching that the first look doesn't count. The second look is sin. Because when I turn and I look to, to stare and, and take in, that's where lust is taking hold and the degrading of that other person or at least the objectifying of that other person. Then he comes to divorce. And divorce, we don't have time to go into all the nuances of divorce. That would require a counseling session. But what was happening in Jesus' day is there were two schools of thought. There was the conservative school and there was the liberal school. The liberal school was the school of Hillel. The conservative school was the school of Shammai. And the Shammai people taught that you could only divorce for one reason, and that was adultery. The Hillel school taught you could divorce for any reason. Now, what they all pointed back to was a passage in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where Moses allows for divorce if there is some offense that he find, a man finds in the woman. And the question is, what is the offense? Well, the liberal school thought it could be anything, burnt toast. And the conservative school said, no, it's only speaking of adultery. So Jesus now pulls all the loose threads of that together and say, you know what, you guys, it, it is for adultery, but you need to know that you guys have, have made divorce something trite in this society. People divorcing for any reason at all. Marriage is sacred. 
And when two people come together, they become one. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't forgiveness for those of us that have experienced divorce. And certainly in our society, our congregation, there has to be a large number of us that have experienced divorce. And it doesn't mean that the scripture doesn't allow for other reasons beyond what Jesus says here. Because Paul says that if you're abandoned, if, if the person leaves you, that you are free. And you might even argue today that someone in physical abuse, at least I would, uh, or some married to someone that's uh, captured in a life of crime and drugs, that that's a, it's a way out for you, out of marriage. But in this day, Jesus is saying it's adultery only. And he's saying that marriage is precious. Then we go on, him telling us to tell the truth. You have heard it said uh, from people long ago, do not break an oath. Uh, but I tell you, don't even make the oath. What was happening in their day, because they didn't want to swear by God's name, because they were f afraid of breaking the third command, you should not take the Lord's name in vain. We usually interpret that to say don't cuss with God's name. But what it was probably referring to was swearing an oath and then breaking the oath. That is saying swear to God and then breaking your oath. That was taking the Lord's name in vain. Anytime I have anybody say swear to God to me, I run away because I particularly probably don't trust them. Why are they even saying that? Why are they feeling the need to swear? Well, in Jesus' day, people would say instead of swear to God and use the name, they would say, I swear by heaven, or I swear by God's throne, or I swear by earth, or I swear by the hair on my head. And Jesus says, don't even swear at all. Become a person of truth. You're devaluing trust when we go to these other methods. Do you remember when we were kids, we would play Mother May I or Simon Says, and if you forgot to say to the leader, Mother May I, and you took a step, you were out, or if they didn't say Simon Says, you were out. That's what swearing is. That's what oaths are. Jesus says, become a person of truth. Then he addresses the issue of just retribution. There's this thing inside of us from the time we were little that you hit me, I hit you. You rob from me, I rob from you. This thing, it was called lex talionis by the Romans. And it's this thing that's built into civic law that someone needs to be punished for what they did to me. And that's true in the civic life. But what about our spiritual lives? Where someone wrongs us. And we just want so badly for them to be wrong. So Jesus gives us again this radical hyperbole of turn the other cheek. And uh, give them your coat also if they want your shirt. The idea is don't be a person that needs to retaliate, rather be a person who actually forgives. Martin Luther King, our great reformer in our nation, he actually said this, if we follow an eye for an eye, the whole world will be blind. Jesus is calling us to something higher. 
and he's calling us to something called forgiveness. And then finally, we come to the, the command to love and not hate. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your neighbor, your enemy rather, and pray for those who persecute you. Is hating okay? As a radical follower of Jesus, the answer is no. There were people in Jesus' day from Qumran who taught that hating was okay. And oftentimes the whole religious discrimination around the world seems to authenticate one religious group hating another religious group. But Jesus says it's not okay. The revolutionary Jesus calls us to bless those that harm us. And this became a very important thing in the early church. Paul repeats it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Peter repeats it. Do not repay evil for evil, insult for insult, but blessing. And Jesus summarizes it all by saying, we've got to do this because you're not like the world anymore. You're like your father. And he uses that word, father. You have the DNA of God in you now. You have been saved. You have been uh, redeemed and now you're being transformed his DNA his blood is in you and now guess what he calls us to be re-radicalized and then I want to draw your attention to this very last thing be perfect it's almost like he's giving us the seventh command you know six is the incomplete number and we're waiting for the number of completion, the number seven, and it's not there. So think of it this way. Either he's saying, this is the seventh one. Be mature as your heavenly father is complete. Be merciful as he's merciful. Or he's saying, and I like this one. I made it up myself. It's incomplete because what is it in you that needs changing? We've only dealt with six things. We could deal with your unkindness. We could deal with, globally, your selfishness. We could deal with uh, my need uh, to be angry quickly and not patient. We could deal with all kinds of things. And I believe that Jesus wants to touch all of these areas of our lives. So as we close, here's some questions I want you to think about. Are we limiting Jesus in our spiritual life? Do we really understand when he calls us to be salt and light that he means to change us from the inside out? So does God want a better you to have a better world? The answer is yes. Does following Jesus make a difference as to who you and I are? The answer is yes. Do you have and do I have a tendency to compromise? And stay away from the difficult passages of Scripture. Or make little treaties that I don't have to change in this area of my life. That's just the way I am. No, God wants to change these areas. Is transformation an option or is it extra credit? No. This is our time to see God begin to change our lives. So what issue is the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder for? And are you all in? 
You're at the double black diamond slope looking down and you're looking at that part of your life that you know needs changing. Are you all in? There's a number that's on your screen. And if you are all in, if you are deciding today that, yeah, I want Jesus to deal with this area of my life, whatever that happens to be, just tax this word faith because it's, it's going to deal with you. It's forcing you to take that step that says, I want to be transformed. I'm all in. Years ago, I had an experience. God woke me up in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. And I don't normally use God's name flippantly. It really was him. I knew his presence was there. And there was a book in my mind. It was written by C.S. Lewis called Till We Have Faces. And I was prompted to get up and read it. I don't do this. It was just what was important for me. And so from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., I read the book. And I had read this 10 years ago. It didn't make any sense to me then. And I read it this time, and I realized it made perfect sense to me that there was an area in my life that God wanted to change. And the idea of the title of the book, Till We Have Faces, means we don't really look like Jesus, automatically, that things need to change in our lives. And in the story, there's this queen who she's controlling, uh, she's judgmental, she's insecure, uh, and she's jealous. And it shows on her face, so she wears a mask because she doesn't want anybody to see who she really is. And she goes through all these different things till finally her face is changed and she begins to look like she's always wanted to look. So God wants you to have the face of Jesus. He wants you to have the face of Christ. And where do we start? We start with a passage like this, listening to it, obeying it, and saying, Jesus, I am all in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this day that you are working in all of our lives and we give permission to your Holy Spirit to tap us on the shoulder, to climb inside and to rearrange us that we might be more like you. Thank you that you want to get to the heart of every issue. And so change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we worship together, I want to encourage you once again, if you haven't texted that number, do so now and let me know because we, have, we want to be praying for you. We won't know your name. We won't know who you are, but we want to know that, that God is working in your life. Let's worship together. battle 
My friends, as we go, the beginning of the Aaronic benediction or the Aaronic blessing is the Lord lift up his face and shine upon you. And what that's reminding us is that you were made in the image of God. So may you be blessed and live with the face of God shining on your face. May you be reflecting who he is. May he continue to protect you through this virus season. May God continue to provide for you during this economic downturn. May God continue to give you peace and hope. And may this re-radicalized 
transformation continue in your life and my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.